title of the message is The Responsibility of the Redeemed. And so let's uh, just take our hearts to the Lord. Father, you are good and you are greatly to be praised. We love you. Lord, it's, it's our honor to be here before you. And it's our desire, Lord, to hear from you. And we thank you for your faithfulness to move and to minister and to speak to our hearts right where we're at. So encourage and edify the body. Glorify yourself today. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. We all say, Amen. Amen. We serve an overwhelmingly gracious God. I mean, who could measure the immeasurable amount of grace that God dispenses in and upon our lives? I mean, God's grace is necessary in literally each facet, every feature, not so much as a single nuance of my life that's not in need of God's grace. I mean, every second of every day. And that's just me personally. Man, when you combine the needs of all of us collectively, it is staggering. But God delights, in fact, looks for the opportunity to dispense his inexhaustible supply of grace upon our lives. And of all the grace that our lives demand, even collectively, it doesn't really even amount to so much as a thimbleful to be dipped out of the endless ocean of, of his unending grace. Last week, we concluded in consideration of the discipline of God. Even in his discipline, his grace is for us. It's seeking to lead us in repentance or to repentance. And God was saying to the children of Israel, look around. Guys, I've let your entire lives burn to the ground because you're my people, yet you won't walk in my ways or render obedience to my word. And yet for all the pain and anguish that came upon them, we read that he did not know. It burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. And it just makes me wonder how many times God seeks to get our attention, turn us back to him, yet we do not know. We walk around oblivious to it, just thinking, wow, I mean, look at what's come upon me. I can't believe this is happening to me. And we don't take it to heart. Guys, I'm so glad that we serve a gracious God. And, and so with that, let's take and turn our attention. I'm going to finish this mint. Don't turn your attention to the fact that I'm going to finish the mint. I'm Sam. Verse 1, Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord... Who created you, O Jacob? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Don't you just love the richness of the Word of God? I tell you what, there's obviously a lot that we could build from or focus on right here in this very first verse. But one thing that I want to draw your attention to that I would have you take note of, having made our way and kind of continuing to make our way through these chapters, the thing that I want you to take note of, hopefully you've seen it or picked up on it, is the tremendous emphasis upon creation. Have you noted that? It's almost as if God knew that the time would come when the truth of creation would come under attack. And so... He repeats the fact that he is our creator again and again. 
that he created the heavens and stretched them out, that he spread forth the earth and all that comes from it. And of course, he said, then let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And of course, we could get into the council of the triune Godhead with regard to that particular statement, but we're not really here to develop that point right now, but we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we have created, 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 created. Now, why camp on this? Guys, it's going to build into another principle that's yet to reveal itself in our section of scripture today, and that is this that there is a purpose for which you were created. If you're a note taker or a margin etcher out there by the first verse of the 43rd chapter, you might just write it down. Creation equals purpose. If you build something, you create something, you do so with a purpose in mind. If something just evolves, and I want you to see the subtle attack and assault on the Word of God uh, through the way the world rationalizes today. If something just evolves through chance or a series of random processes over the course of billions of years, there is no purpose to that. It's one of the questions now that plague the minds of mankind. What is my purpose? What's the point Why am I here? And God wants you to know that you have a purpose, that he's created you. By the way, let me say this as long as we're on the subject. There is a unique claim, a special claim that God has upon us because he's our creator. But when people forget that God created them, When they reject the truth of being God's creation, they fail in the most basic obligation that they have to God. Listen, when you create something, you own it. You know, there you are. Uh, You have the raw materials. You decide you're going to, with those materials, craft and create a guitar. Listen, it's your guitar. I can't just happen by and say, wow, that's a nice guitar. It's mine now. It just it doesn't work like that. You built it. It's yours to do with as you please. What am I saying? Humanity by right belongs to God. And then we see the command here, fear not. And God gives Israel and us by way of application the reason why they weren't to fear. Now, we've looked at this over the last few weeks or so. It wasn't because they had some unique ability to be courageous tucked deep down inside of them that if they just focused hard enough, maybe they could rouse it into fruition. God doesn't tell us to dig deep and see what we can do. He says, I want you to rest confidently in what I've already done for you, okay? He says, for I have, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Now, if that is not highlighted, underlined, circled, somehow drawn attention to or distinguished in your Bible, make it so. 
God says, don't get locked on your circumstances presently. I want to draw your attention, your focus beyond that to the work which I've accomplished for you eternally. God says, for I have, well, the word is, what? Redeemed you. The word redeemed, speaking of a purchase price that's been paid. Concerning our context, he's probably pointing them back to the Exodus. The Passover lamb whose blood would be shed to spare them from certain death and deliver them from the chains and the bondage of of Egypt, see to it that they were set free. For you and me, we realize that was a foreshadow that would ultimately be fulfilled in the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who would shed His blood to spare us eternal death, deliver us from the chains and the bondage of sin. Now, don't miss this. Israel had... And again, just let me say, by way of application, you and I have a, if you'll allow the term, double obligation to God. We're obligated to Him as our Creator, yes, and we're obligated to Him as our Redeemer. God created us, therefore by right, He owned us. We were His. Yes or yes? But then, of our own volition, we sold ourselves into the slave market of sin. And then God comes along, and out of His great love for us, with which He loved us, He bought us back. You might say we're twice owned. He not only created us, after we enslaved ourselves, He paid the purchase price to set us free, to redeem us. He says, I've called you by your name. You are mine. What a wonderful answer to fear. You belong to the Lord. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. That means that he takes responsibility for you. It's his to provide, to protect, to guide, to correct, and to care for us. And so in the words of the Apostle Paul, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, come on somebody, who can be against us? And having begun a good work in you, he's not going to leave. Listen, he's not like I may be or you perhaps are. He's not going to leave it half undone. He'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see this and then we'll move on. When God says, I have called you by your name, or I have called you by name, there is something deeply personal about that. I want you to be careful that you don't toss this phrase, I have called you by name, into the, well, of course God knows my name. He knows everything file, okay? 
God knows my name is manifestly, distinctly different than God is omniscient. Uh, God is omniscient is theological. God calls me by name is deeply personal. It speaks of relationship. When God says, you are mine, though it's true that he's created me individually, it's true that he has redeemed me legally, when he says, you are mine, it speaks of his love for me, his relationship with me personally. Does this make sense to you? Think of me saying to my wife, I am yours and you are mine. You are the bride of Christ. It's a love relationship in view. I just hope that warms your heart this morning. It's cold outside. But may the love of God for you warm you on the inside. Amen. Look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia, and how you say, Seba or Sebav in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Can't you see the love simply pouring out of this passage that God has for his people? Because God knows you. Because you are his. And again, guys, we realize the strict interpretation of this passage. Yes, it belongs to Israel. But surely there is application here for you and for me. Because you'll find many of these same principles, if not all of them, rehearsed and repeated in the New Testament with regard to God's love for you and the relationship that Christ has with you. But because we're his responsibility, he's not going to leave us alone when we suffer life's difficulties, when we pass through overwhelming tragedies. That's what he's saying. In the New Testament, we read it like this, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Quick question, not a trick question. What does the word never mean? It means never. Everyone's like, what's he going to say? Not a trick question. It means never. Therefore, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. By the way, if you're drawn to details as such you ought to be, let's not overlook this word, when. It's not if in this life, Jesus said it like this, in this world, you will experience tribulation. Tough times, 
seemingly insurmountable situations, listen to me, will find you. They won't be fun. They won't feel like a wonderful opportunity to grow spiritually, though we know that God uses them often in that capacity. But you will have questions. You will wonder why. I mean, the full gamut of emotions will come flooding in. God says, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. These obstacles that are besetting, problems that are overwhelming. And we need to understand that these deep waters are something that you and, and me, we are going to have to, our words are, pass through them. It was all the way back in 1970. Simon and Garfunkel wrote their famous song, Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And it's a, it's a beautiful song. It's a wonderful song. Speaking of you know, taking your place in the midst of your pain, holding you up so you don't have to bear it. Sounds great. Don't let it confuse your biblical hermeneutics. There's your $2 word for today. Uh, it just means interpretation, okay? The interpretation of Scripture. Don't let it somehow play into the way that you think God would relate with us. God never said that He would be our bridge over troubled waters. He said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. God stands with us. He adds strength to us. How many times have we been up against what for us may seem to be insurmountable or uh, an uncrossable ocean of trouble or tribulation or tragedy or turmoil? But you're here today and God has seen you safely through to the other side. Praise God. I mean, that should give our hearts reason to rejoice. We'll see it referred to later on in verse 16 as well next time. But when he's talking about when you pass through the waters, when you go through the rivers, probably the ancient Israelite calling back to mind the crossing of the Red Sea, the uh, you know, subsequent crossing of the Jordan River and all. How that God was with them, was faithful to them, and brought them safely through to the other side. God says, I'm going to, I've been there for you. I'm always going to be there for you. Does this make sense to you? He continues. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. So from one extreme to the other. Waters on the one hand, fire on the other. One that overwhelms, the other that consumes 
And if the reference to the water points to their past, the picture of the fire, at least for me, makes me think of their future from where they were in this particular passage. For at least a few of them, listen, leave the book of Isaiah. Let's fast forward into the future to Daniel chapter 3. Take your Bible, turn in it to the third chapter of the book of Daniel. Oh, you know where this is going, but let's go with it. Daniel chapter 3. And in Daniel chapter 3, we find the nation of Israel, or pardon me, the nation of Babylon, really at the peak or the pinnacle of its existence, as of its existence, pardon me, uh, as it pertains to being a world power. Really, at this point in world history, Babylon was the global superpower. And the king of Babylon at this time was probably the primary king most of you are familiar with as it pertains to Babylon, and that would be Nebuchadnezzar. And basically what he had decided was that he was so great that he would have this giant image of gold crafted, presumably after his own image, though we don't know that for sure, And it was set up in the plains of Dura, in the province of Babylon. It would be 90 feet tall. It would be nine feet wide. So a a giant pillar, so to speak, set in the plain. And the command went out that any time the people heard the horn blast or the music begin to play, didn't matter who you were, didn't matter what nation you may represent, didn't matter what language you might speak, you are to fall down and worship this image that the king had set up. And that's exactly what happened. Because if you didn't, you would be thrown into a fiery furnace. Well, that sounds like a reasonable way to motivate people. But you are familiar with the history. And there were three... I don't know why that happened. There were three... I missed my finger on the way out. Hebrew boys who just could not bring themselves to bow the knee. And to make matters worse, as far as political pressure would be concerned for Nebuchadnezzar, these three boys were in the king's cabinet. I mean, he had promoted them, along with Daniel, into overseeing some of the affairs of the province. And so the king, you know, here's the word that there are these three guys who won't obey. And so uh, they bring the, they, he says, hey, bring them to me. He sees who they are. He realizes what's happening here. And he says, listen, boys, I'm, I'm just going to trust that uh, you just didn't understand exactly what was expected of you. Uh, so I'm going to give you another chance. And he says, when you hear the trumpet blast, I just want to make sure that you understand we're communicating here. When you hear the trumpet blast, you hear the music begin to play, you just take a knee, you worship the image, all will be well. Sound good? And, and he says, but, but if you don't, you're going to be cast immediately into the fiery, burning furnace. And who is the God? It's like things take a turn, right? I mean, it it went from like, 
She says, oh, it's going to be okay. Just go ahead and take a knee, and, and I'll, that'll, it'll be good. But if you don't, you're going to be cast immediately into the burning, fiery furnace. Hear me. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? This is the situation. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, in other words, we're confident in his ability. However, if he chooses not to as it pertains to this situation specifically, even so, okay? But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Ooh. I mean, you can, can you see this in your mind's eye? And then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. I don't know if they meant specifically seven times or just it's going to be a whole lot hotter. You know what I mean? And he commanded the certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took, Shadrach, or took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace." Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, notice, not bound, loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like, come on, the Son of God. They went into the fire in bondage, but in the midst of the fire, they were made free. They were loose, walking, unharmed, in the midst of of the fire. Now, look, oh, I switched. Let's go back. I went back. I, don't, I want to keep up here. Verse 26. Let me get to it, guys. I went back to... I've been doing this lately. I had it marked, and then I unmarked it. I want to look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. I have a feeling that they really didn't want to. I mean, you know, they were hanging out with the Lord, you know? 
And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Guys, the only thing that the fire burnt was the ropes that had bound them. Why? Because they weren't alone in the fire. Isn't this the principle we're working with that we're developing when you go through the waters, when you pass through the, when you pass through the fire? I will be with you. God was with them. Now, does that mean that if God is with you, it's always going to turn out like that? Of course not. They knew that. They recognized that. That's why they said God is able to deliver us, but even if not, if he chooses not to, some people pass through the fire and go straight into the presence of the Lord. Either way, God is with you. He's adding the necessary strength to you that you might honor him and bring glory to him in the midst of the trial or the tribulation. Now, turning our attention back to the passage at hand, this is the promise to the nation of Israel. Guys, within its context, God is preparing them for the fact that they're going to go into Babylonian captivity. That's what we were reading of there in Daniel chapter 3. They're going to go into the deep waters. They're going to go through the fiery trials. But God was assuring them that they would not be overcome, nor would they be consumed. Or to understand all that another way, God is promising, listen to me, God is promising the preservation of the nation. Are you with me? God is promising to Israel the preservation of their nation. They will not be overwhelmed. They will not be consumed, no matter how hot the fire may get. Now, family, this is something you can rest assured of in your heart, that God has entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel. Yes, they have turned their backs on Him through their rejection of Jesus Christ. But God has not turned his back on them. Now, are there ramifications to be meted out due to their rejection of Jesus Christ? Yes. But don't be deceived. God has not cast them away. In fact, he promises their preservation. And Paul addresses this very thing. You can write it down, read it later. It's in Romans chapter 11. He acknowledges the history of Israel and even what was happening presently, that is in his day specifically. And he said, it's true. Israel has been consistently disobedient. Israel has been rebellious. Israel is a stiff-necked people. And he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? He says, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, God, uh, pardon me, Paul is reasoning from the position that if God has cast Israel away, then why am I even, how, how can I be writing to you? Okay? God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And then, of course, in the chapter, he goes on to essentially say that if God could accomplish so much in the world through the failure of Israel, right? In other words, he had just a, I mean, Proverbially speaking, a handful of people from the nation of Israel who were zealous about preaching, proclaiming, and getting the good news of the gospel out to the world. And he says, if God could accomplish so much as it pertains to the message of the gospel and the, the good news of salvation through Israel's failure, 
Just imagine what their fullness would accomplish. And the book of Revelation goes on in some detail uh, to speak of that when God turns the nation of Israel back to himself. And of course, the 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes and the 144,000, you know, go out to evangelize the world. Listen, you guys, as far as a people group is concerned, there is not a single people group in the history of the world that has faced the kind of opposition, efforts, and attempts of genocide, assimilation, and total elimination one way or another, as has the Jews. Yet every attempt has failed. Why? Because God has promised, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Today, Israel is at war. You're hearing calls for the eradication and elimination of their entire nation. This mantra that sounds so noble concerning a a pro-Palestinian position. You've probably heard it. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Guys, I try to convince myself that most Americans don't truly understand what that means. Because it is such an incredibly evil war cry. I want you to look at this map right here. What this means, from the river to the sea. They're talking about this river right here. You know what river that is? That's the Jordan River. And they're talking about this sea right here. You know what sea that is? The Mediterranean Sea. What, what is between the river and the sea? The entire nation of Israel. Now you're hearing this... This, uh, you know, this cry about Gaza, Gaza's right here. It's just a little piece right here. That's where a lot of the Palestinians are living. And then here in the West Bank, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What this means is that every Jew from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, again, which if you just take note, is the entire nation of Israel, is to be eradicated and eliminated. It is a genocidal war cry. And people stand and and shout it out as if it's a good thing. But God says, it's never going to happen. The waters won't overflow you. The fires will not consume you or burn you because I am with you. In fact, in Zephaniah chapter 2, the word of God says this. Bring that map back up. Go ahead and bring it back up. It says, for Gaza shall be forsaken. Look at this. Here's Gaza. Where, where is it? This whole strip that you're talking about. Okay, let's go, back to the, let's go back to the verse. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon, which Ashkelon is just north of the Gaza Strip, shall be desolate. Wait, what? Now, I'm not saying that you're going to see that 
fulfilled like in this specific conflict, you, you might. I, you listen, wherever we're at specifically on the prophetic timetable with some of this stuff, there's a little bit of like ambiguity, isn't there? Which means you and me, we need to be ready. But I'm telling you that Israel won't lose. Gaza, however, ultimately will. And it's not because Israel's so great. It's because God has made them a promise. And God is not a man that he should lie. You should rejoice in that fact. Because God's made you a promise in the person of Jesus Christ. And and I love this image of when you walk through the fire. You know, if you're walking, it's not a picture of panic. It's not a, a picture of fear. It's confidence. You know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not run, you know, panic-stricken because I'm not sure what might happen. No, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why won't you fear? Come on. Because you are with me. Now look at verse 4. He says here, guys, we're not too far from finished. He says, since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. You see, it's not that Israel was so great. It's not that you and me, that we are so cool, that God just couldn't do without, you know. It's because you are precious in the sight of God. Because he loves you. You have been honored. The reasons for God's favor do not lie within us. They lie within Him. He loves you. You are precious in His sight. For God so loved you, He gave His only begotten Son for you. Back in verse 3 where He says, I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Saba for your, uh, in your place. After Cyrus released the Jews, he conquered those regions. And God is essentially saying, you were able to do that because I allowed that. I I gave you those nations as, as a payment of sorts for the release of the nation of Israel. I will give men for you, people for your life. Again, for you and me, it's John 3.16 that comes into view. You could also write down Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. You could write down 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. God gave His only begotten Son for you as a ransom, a payment, if you will, for your deliverance. Because you are precious in His sight. Again, I just hope that, I just hope you're overwhelmed with the love of God for you. Verse 5, let's read our final couple of scriptures. Fear not, for I am with you. And I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I made him him. Uh, Again, verses 5 and 6 were a promise to bring the nation of Israel back from Babylon or wherever they had been scattered. It was fulfilled in an even greater way in 1948 when Israel was established once again as a nation. It will be ultimately, those are kind of foreshadowings of the ultimate fulfillment of the millennial reign of Christ uh, when Israel will be brought back into the land in full. Okay, 
Uh, and we're going to close here, uh, Karen. I don't know where you're at. But I told you back in verse 1 that you were created for a purpose. If you evolved, you serve no purpose. I mean, not really, not ultimately. You're just here by means of a random chance and natural selection. But if you were created, it means your creator had a purpose in creating you. And here it is. God says, everyone who is called by my name, underline it, I have created for my glory. When you live your life for the glory of God, you will find meaning. You will find fulfillment. When you serve or live your life for yourself, it's emptiness, frustration, exasperation, and exhaustion. And so live your life for the glory of God. Serve Him. Honor Him. Listen to me. Faithfulness, you might write it down, faithfulness will lead to fruitfulness. And what did Jesus say? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. If you are in Christ Jesus, your role, your responsibility is to glorify God in your life. Paul put it this way, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. What was the price? The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Guys, I don't know how else to say it. And so let's just bow our hearts and ask God to help us do it. Amen. Father, we just want to pray right to the point and ask you to help us, to strengthen us, to empower and embolden us to lead our lives for your glory. And we thank you for your promise to be with us. We thank you for your unfailing love for us. That you have redeemed us, ransomed us, and called us by our name. And so now may we honor you and glorify you in how we respond to you and how we reflect you to a hurt and dying world.